Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. The debt ceiling is your top story because Democrats are refusing to negotiate. They got beat. And they can't handle the fact that they got beat when it comes to the debt ceiling. And they continue to push this irrational argument that somehow it is those evil, wascally Republicans that are doing all sorts of evil. Did you hear this from Alex Wagner over there at MSNBC? I mean, this is just downright precious. Running an ad that Republicans are, are, are putting out there and then and then making the, 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 the claim that they're gaslighting is working. Gaslighting on what? The debt limit is going to get hit. You got to raise it or you got to cut spending. And if you want a deal, you got to make a deal. Listen. Their extreme policies made our economy a mess. Now they refuse to responsibly raise the debt ceiling. Instead of negotiating common sense solutions, they're putting the American economy in crisis. Shame on liberals in Congress. Tell them to stop playing partisan games. That ad, which was made by the House Republican-aligned American Action Network, that ad is part of the group's new six-figure ad buy, and it's running commercials like those in the districts of 11 vulnerable House Democrats. And I know, to anyone who has been following the debt ceiling fights over the past decade, that ad feels like madness. It feels like you have been plunged into opposite land. But the GOP gaslighting seems to be working. This is a new poll from Morning Consult and Politico. It shows that most voters, 37%, would blame both parties equally if the U.S. defaulted on its national debt. Only 24% of voters would blame Republicans for a crisis that is literally manufactured by Republicans. And 30% of voters would blame Democrats. It seems to me like you got yourself a problem, Alex Wagner. You keep trying to sell a story that no one's buying. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. I'm going to break this down with Noah Rothman of National Review coming up in a little bit. Democrats put themselves in this place and are angry that they're in this place. And they have a press that is desperate to try and get them out of it. But you can't get out of reality. If you want to increase the debt limit, you're going to have to give a little. And when there's a meeting set for just a, just a few days from now, and Joe Biden's team is on record saying there'll be no discussion of the debt ceiling on, on I think it was May 9th, like we're going to get together and we're going to talk, but there'll be no uh, conversation about this on May 9th. Oh, so you won't negotiate. Republicans put forth the bill. Republicans are ready, but you won't negotiate. No wonder people think it's your fault. But that's not the only story What of this possible assassination attempt that took place in Russia, and was it Ukraine? Russia claims that it foiled. Foiled, I say. Curses, foiled again. Uh, They foiled an assassination attempt against Vladimir Putin. Said it was a terrorist attack. They're promising retaliation. The Ukrainian president denied it saying we don't attack Putin or Moscow. 
so what happened? What is it? What is it that we we actually saw? Uh, when I did some reaching out to, to get an idea of what happened, and asking point blank, did Ukraine just try to did Ukraine just try to assassinate Vladimir Putin? The answer I got from people in the know was nah. Uh, they didn't think that was it. What they thought it was was a pretty impressive false flag, right? You've got this drone that's flying by uh, the, the 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 Russian symbols of power. Like, that's a strong imagery. <laughs> you think you're so tough. Look what we can do. Um, Is it or was it an assassination attempt? I think there's something in it for everybody. I think there is something in this story for everyone. So the people who are supportive of Ukraine can go out there and say, look how they're fighting and they, they, they're going to get Putin and they're going to put an end to this war. And the people who are not interested in spending are saying, my gosh, these Ukrainians, they don't want peace. They just want to create more harm and more damage. We shouldn't be giving them money at all. Everywhere you look, People are going to take this as their opportunity. Did the Ukrainians do it? Maybe. Would I, would I put it past them? No. Do I think that somehow uh, Vladimir Zelensky is some kind of holy, decent cat? Gosh, no. Do I think it's possible that uh, Russia did this to themselves uh, to make it it look like an attack so they can get more people sympathetic uh, to to their side. I mean, if you say to me, there, there's no way they did that, do I have to discuss the USS Maine? Look, uh, all is fair in love and war, and things are often done to get people to act and react in a certain way. It is as equally possible, if not probable, that the Ukrainians did this, that the Russians did this to themselves. Absolutely true. Now, as ABC News reported on this, there was no independent verification of the reported attack. Russians said it occurred overnight, but presented no evidence at the time. And then there were questions as to why it took Kremlin's hour to report the incident, why videos of it also surfaced that late in the day it leads one in a direction of, well, they don't know how to well orchestrate these things. And of course not. They're commies. They're not good at orchestrating anything. They're just not. They're not good at it. They don't They don't have the, the, the skill set to do it. These two stories, this debt ceiling story, this, this story of the Russian attack, probably the two biggest stories going on right now, and I have got more on both of those coming up. Keep it right here. I'm Tony Katz. Again, there is there is no there is no person you can point to and say, oh, that person represents Antifa. Every time they see four black people, they think it's Antifa. No, it's uh, to be honest, it's actually largely white. Or white. Well, that's well, what we said. There are people we, online who go who openly identify, identify as Antifa. Well, I, they may, and I'm going to say, I think, oftentimes, 
things like Antifa are things that are thought up, ideas that are thought up and pushed and moved. Because That's Whoopi Goldberg proving to you that Whoopi Goldberg knows nothing. Just, I mean, just a statement. They see four black people. They think it's Antifa. Everybody knows Antifa is uh, anarchistic uh, pseudo-intellectuals, all white, who don't understand uh, what it is to be punched in the face. But the minute it happens to them, they all fall down, wet themselves, and cry for their mommy. They all long for the embrace of, of their mom's basement. Every member of Antifa is a tool and a fool. And the minute they get punched in the nose, they all collapse. These are paper tigers. But since nobody stops them, they break things and set things on fire. And they cover their faces as, as the cowards uh, that, that they are. They, they aren't organized in the sense that they have a belief system. They just have a des- desire for destruction. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. But to say that it's not real, it's not happening, there aren't people who believe in this level of destruction, well, that's just that's just ignorant. You think it's being pushed by the political right? That's an ignorant position from a foolish woman. Sometimes ignorant positions come from foolish men. This is an ignorant position from a foolish woman. The position of J.D. Vance is not a conversation of ignorance, the senator from Ohio. Rather, it, it, to me, required a conversation with you because he's t- talking to Eric Bowling over there at Newsmax. And, well, it's, it's, it's odd because I'm not, I'm not sure what it is he thinks that is happening. I am not sure this is where Fox News is. Wait for it. And I am not so convinced that he's not trying to start the fight. Fox News getting rid of Tucker Carlson was an odd move, and I would argue a mistake. uh, Fox News has been through mistakes before. Remember, they got rid of Glenn Beck. You know what they did? They took a couple people together and said, hey, Gutfeld, you and Perino, sit down and, you know what, grab Beckel. Yeah, throw him a bone. Grab Beckel, okay, Uh, start talking. And that's how the five got created. And they didn't know they had the juggernaut. That was it. Game over. They got rid of Bill O'Reilly. Bill O'Reilly. You can't replace Bill O'Reilly. Here comes Tucker. Fox has been through these things before and has come out the other end. And for all the people screaming, I'm never going to watch Fox. I was on Fox uh, over the weekend. And people are like, I won't watch Fox anymore. I'm like, oh, okay. But of course people are still watching Fox. And of course they will. But J.D. Vance went on Newsmax, and this was the conversation the Ohio senator had with Eric Bowling. First of all, you know, Tucker's a dear friend of mine, uh, and I think, like you said, a great leader in the conservative movement, a huge mistake for Fox to part ways with him in the way that they did. Uh, I'm sure all the details will come out. I will say, for Tucker Carlson's sake, I'm not worried about him. He's a once-in-a-generation talent, and I think he'll continue to have a, an important voice in our movement, at least I hope so, because I think that voice is so unique. You know, to, to, to me, I, I don't like this idea of having Fox move away from the MAGA movement. I think it would be a huge mistake if the network chose to do that. 
you still have obviously some great people there. You've got Laura Ingram and Sean Hannity, great, great people. Uh, but if, if they decide to try to go to war against the base of the Republican Party, they're going to alienate their audience and they're not going to acquire like CNN and MSNBC viewers in the process. They're never going to go to Fox News. So I don't know what the editorial decisions are being made at Fox, but I hope that they stay loyal to the base of the movement that actually made them such a successful business in the first place. We'll see if that actually happens in the next few weeks. Now, I, I, I first... When when this happened, right, and, and Tucker was uh, was he let go? Did he quit? Was he fired? How 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 ever you want want to see it? And of course, people reacted. You never know how long things will last. Certainly, what we said after the twenty twenty election, and Chris Steyerwall could say whatever he wants. This is a guy I've had on the show repeatedly over the years, but I haven't since the twenty twenty election. You failed in calling the 2020 election. That Arizona eventually went for Biden is to not recognize the issues that were at play in Arizona. And to not recognize those issues, that was the failing of Fox. If we're going to get down to the nitty gritty, to the granular, that's really it. It isn't that the state couldn't have been called for someone else. It's that you were so desirous to call it for Biden, you wouldn't even recognize that there were issues because, of course, there were issues. And many of those issues went through the courts and and nothing became of it. Some of them didn't get to go through the courts, and that's always a problem. Some of it was counted. Oh, look, here's what we found here, and here's what's there, and Biden has won this, and, 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 and here's a question over here. And recognize those things. The idea that America can't accept or the political right can't accept that Biden is president was never true. It was that they could never accept that maybe things weren't 100% kosher. Maybe there were some issues and maybe that should have been respected. And maybe your audience should have been respected, not by telling them something that they wanted to hear when it wasn't true, but by telling them what was true, even though you didn't want to hear it. And that's where Chris Steyerwalt failed, in my view. I don't know. Maybe I should have him back on the show. Maybe, hold on. I can hear people screaming no. I, I can actually hear it from my studio. But the when, when that happens, Fox absolutely, absolutely lost viewers they went to newsmax and newsmax was not perfectly prepared to to take them in and and there's an extent to which that's understandable they were they, while they were established they were still growing trying to build and they just didn't have the capacity of the hosts to be able to take in all the information they didn't they didn't have it just just so we understand each other there But what we said at the time was Newsmax is going to keep some of these viewers for forever, but the vast majority are going to absolutely go back to Fox, even though they come back to Newsmax from time to time. That played out. We knew exactly what was going to happen. We have seen people engage in reactionary moves, and we know that eventually that wanes, and there is something that goes back to a standard, a basic. It takes momentum and time to provide long-term shifts. The firing of, of, of Tucker 
is again a shift and we're certainly seeing that movement. We have seen nothing yet that shows that the 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 movement is uh permanent. We've seen nothing yet. I get your point. There's real anger. I, don't get me wrong. I see it. You'd be crazy not to see it. Anybody who doesn't understand that the Fox audience is angry with with Fox because of the Tucker firing. And I would argue in, in a way angrier than um, what happened with the 2020 election. Because the audience has gotten more intensified and engaged in connection with people who they feel are the only ones engaged in honesty. What are you supposed to do? Trust Jake Tapper? Stop it. And then you let him go and people are like, well, what the hell is this? I, I thought you were the only people I could trust. Now I can't trust you, Fox News. And, and that's the way it goes. What J.D. What JD Vance is discussing here is that he doesn't want Fox News to go to war with the MAGA base. Now, this has been a conversation regarding the fact that people like former Speaker Paul Ryan is on the board of directors of Fox. And was it people like Ryan and others who got to Rupert Murdoch and said, we can't have this, and you can't do this, you can't say this, we can't be this, we got to change this, we have to go after this. And therefore, uh, anything January 6th was totally taboo, and therefore you had to get rid of Tucker. What did happen? What did ha- happen there is is is, is stuff of, of conversation and certainly uh, a rumor mills. Fox News going to war with a MAGA base. I must tell you, I don't know what that means. But what is, what does it mean to go to war with the MAGA base? And what have they done outside of this to even remotely go down that road? What, what, I don't understand how his commentary matches the situation and how people feel. Maybe, maybe it should be asked this way. Is the person who was watching Tucker in, in totality, all MAGA? Is, is, is that it? Or were they down for Tucker? And noting that Tucker had differences from Trump. I I don't know. I think the argument that J.D. Vance should be engaged in is, my gosh, it's going to be a real shame if Fox News tries to see itself as more of an MSNBC, CNN competitor, as opposed to CNN and MSNBC trying to raise to the level of Fox. That's where the issue is. If you want your commentary to play more to the middle in terms of what you believe, not necessarily approach, that is a losing recipe. That's failure. So if you're going to discuss, as Senator Vance is discussing, staying loyal, the thing to stay loyal to is that you've got a, your, 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 your commentary people have a point of view that it connects them, even though they have different ideas and thoughts, and that should reign supreme. And then how they go about it is different. I didn't think it was about Fox News staying loyal or going to war with a MAGA base. I just think that he's off in his commentary and understanding where the Fox viewer is.
Some of those people are going to come back. Some of those people are lost forever. And there's only so many times Fox can make moves like this. I'm Tony Katz. It still makes me laugh that the Democrats think that they get to decide all the parameters of this conversation about the debt ceiling. Because, of course, they don't. But what they want you to believe is that somehow and in some way, if Republicans don't do what Democrats want, it will be the quite literally the end of civilization. The way they parse it and they phrase it. I mean, this was a member of, of Biden's economic team. I think her name is Heather Bushy, B-O-U-S-H-E-Y, talking about the idea of responsibility. Well, we have been watching this closely and certainly waiting for the news in terms of what tax receipts would look like. And Janet Yellen's, um, Secretary Yellen's uh, letter yesterday indicated that this deadline is, is, more, is more urgent than we had thought. But certainly the deadline was already urgent. Um, we know that uh, this is Congress's constitutional responsibility to make sure to increase the debt limit so that the... Congress's responsibility is to increase a debt limit? Or is Congress's responsibility actually to spend within their means? Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, it's good to be with you. Let me bring in Noah Rothman of National Review. He is also the author, if you don't know Noah, of The Rise of the New Puritans, Fighting Back Against Progressives' War on Fun. He is also the author of Unjust, Social Justice, and the Unmaking of America. You can find both of those books at Amazon.com. Democratic fishers over the debt ceiling fight are growing. That's an article that you have over at National Review, and that comports with a story that MSNBC did that says, my gosh, the Republicans, their their messaging is working, and people see the debt ceiling fight as the Democrats' fault, and if we default, we're going to blame the Democratic Party. We can't have this happen. Talk to me about where we are in this. Is somehow Congress's responsibility just to raise a debt limit willy-nilly? And if that's the case, why even have a debt limit? Right. No, I mean, if you actually look at the the record, the debt limit fights actually do fairly uh, restrict uh, the spending trajectory in Washington. And they've been the occasion for a variety of uh, negotiated deals, bipartisan deals, over spending. Um, Democrats are attempting to suggest here that this is totally unprecedented, wholly unwarranted, really beyond the pale. And they spent the last month, I guess, just saying that. Meanwhile, Republicans put a bill together. Republicans put a spending bill together, uh, a variety of other uh, programs, uh, cuts to programs, social welfare programs, or re- uh, restrictions on accessing them for able-bodied eligible recipients. Uh, and they got a bill passed. And now they're in the driver's seat. Uh, Democrats should have been probably taking this opportunity to present a competing uh, bill that wasn't just a clean debt ceiling limit, or even if they just wanted a clean debt ceiling limit, like put that put that on the floor, get your members on record. But they didn't do that. They outsourced negotiations to the White House. The White House insisted that it wouldn't negotiate until Republicans managed to present some sort of a of a of an uh, argument on there that justifies, demonstrates that they're united on this. And the anticipation that they wouldn't be able to do it, an anticipation that I kind of had, too. I was surprised by the degree, the fact that they managed to get this through, albeit with a, the narrowest possible margin, 217, which is exactly what you need to pass a bill. But they got it through. And now Democrats are saying, well, you know, we're, we're not going to negotiate on spending outside of the budget process. We'll talk about spending in the budget process, sure. But not the debt ceiling. That's just that's a British too far. 
it's a very narrow process argument. And process arguments tend not to convince the public. Not at all. Principal argument when the principal argument is we're spending too much. That's and, easy to comprehend. And you Democrat's take a, position is incomprehensible. And you take a look at this May 9th meeting that Biden is supposed to have with leaders in Congress where the White House has already announced the debt ceiling is off the table. Well, if you tell the Republican Party they're not negotiating fast enough, they've been delaying too long in getting this bill out, everything is the Republicans' fault, here's a meeting three weeks before Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, <laughs> says, the end of the world is coming on June 1st, people. We got to get this done. And Biden's team, through Corinne Jean-Pierre, the White House Press Secretary, says, we will not be negotiating on the debt ceiling. It certainly makes the Democratic Party look intransigent and that leads to the question of who is where are actually these fissures that you're talking about who's cracking and who can apply the pressure to biden to get something done yeah first a quick note on how badly served democrats are by their echo chamber in the press um because if they had at least one you know voice of reason in there a tenth man who would argue the the alternative position just for the sake of argument they might have encountered the idea that their arguments are contradictory, that running up against the debt ceiling, even getting close to the debt ceiling, is this apocalyptic event. But no, we won't negotiate even slightly from our position. We won't budge from our position even slightly. And their position hasn't moved, even while Kevin McCarthy's has. Kevin McCarthy wanted pre, pre-COVID level spending caps initially. Not anymore. Now we're talking about 2022 caps. Just last year, last year's spending level is where the caps are in this in this bill. And that movement has not been reciprocated by Democrats. They appear, as you say, recalcitrant. Um, but not every Democrat is on board. As you said, you had, even before Republicans managed to pass this bill, you had Democrats like Debbie Dingell in Michigan, Greg Landsman in Ohio, and Senator Joe Manchin saying, listen, we're going to have to negotiate. Voters gave the the Republicans control of the chamber from which spending bills originate in the Constitution. That's the political reality with which we must contend. And in the interim, since that bill has passed, you've seen some more moderate members of the Democratic caucus, but nevertheless Democrats, uh, coming out and also supporting some negotiated settlement, uh, which implies movement on the part of Democrats who have otherwise been resistant to moving at all. So Republicans are united in this, mostly united. Democrats are not. Their position is eroding. They're seeing people abandon, you know, seeing their their trenches thin out as their side abandons their position. And yet they remain committed to this course. And only, I can imagine, only because the echo chamber in the press is so committed to supporting the Democratic narrative, even though it's becoming politically untenable before their eyes. Right. It it is always important for people to notice how the Democratic Party can act in the face of facts because they will never be held to account to the facts by the media that doesn't hold them to account. Talking to Noah Rothman of National Review, by the way, you use the term recalcitrant, stubbornly resistant to or defiant of authority or guidance. I used intransigent, refusing to moderate a position, especially an extreme position, and uncompromising. So we were close in our in our terminologies there. Let me change Yours gears. Yours was far more accurate. Though. Oh, well, then look at me. Precision strike. <laughs> All right, so, so far I've got one, and in the course of the times you've been on the show, you've got 400 and six so so you're still in the lead 
by by Justice Scotch. <laughs> Good to know we were keeping track. Oh, we're always but keeping I'm track. Four hundred and six. Four hundred six. Yeah, you might want to write that down. <laughs> You've got another piece, and I originally had reached out to you about it because we've been discussing this on the show for about a year and about how wokeness, we'll utilize that terminology, has infected medicine. And we watch how there are these oaths that new doctors are taking, let's say Columbia Medical School and others, where they're recognizing that we stand on stolen uh, indigenous land and we recognize the disparities in the health system and how we have added uh, to to the bigotry. We see that there is a move in medicine not to actually treat patients as they need, need to be treated, but rather treating them under some other guise of what I could refer to as do-goodery. Your piece, The Anti-Racism Extortion Racket, is coming for your doctor. It, it is rare that I see you engage the concept of racket, of of the... Not not even the more the more I read of you, the more we talk, you have this very unique way of trying to bring about a a position. You explain your position well. Rarely do I see you go full jugular. I don't get that, Noah, from you very often. I thought this was a full jugular piece right here. The anti-racism extortion racket is coming for your doctor. What is it that you are seeing that brought this forward? Well, just. Yes, I'll, I'll t- stick with the, the medical issue, but I've been calling it an extortion racket for a while, and I only started calling it BEI, an extortion racket, when it became obvious that it was an extortion racket. You needed a sufficient evidence to justify the claim. The claim arises um, from, in particular, just to summarize briefly, um, over the summer of 2020, when just about every institution in the United States committed itself to an anti-racist philosophy and rooting out the vestiges of racism that were supposedly embedded in the DNA of these institutions, a lot of institutions committed money, funds, to reparative racial policies. Um, I'm talking about like Citigroup and uh, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase and Amazon, big multi, you know, multinationals. And um, these, a lot of these were deemed insufficient by the authors of DEI and demanded that they uh, commit to racial audits, audits of this money and where it was going and what it was doing. Uh, and when J.P. Morgan Chase, for example, uh, contracted PricewaterhouseCoopers, no small name in the business of auditing, it was uh, attacked summarily because it had insufficiently demonstrated commitment to the cause of anti-racism by not hiring firms that are committed to anti-racism. So when Amazon got around to doing its racial audit, it learned the rules of the road and hired former Obama Attorney General Loretta Lynch to perform its racial audit so that all the money goes around in the circle and everybody gets a taste. It's an extortion racket, which brings us to the New England Journal of Medicine, which published inexplicably an incomprehensible essay whose only value, as far as I can see, is that it puts a gun to the head of the medical establishment and compels them to hire DEI professionals to racially segregate medical students for the benefit of their education. And it's an incomprehensible essay. It, has, it makes claims that are utterly unfalsifiable, notions which don't belong in a medical journal, notions like uh, traditional medical education is, quote, founded in inequitable systems, uh, and that to remedy these shortcomings, quote, racial affinity group caucuses, which is derived from the indigenous theory of an Algonquin term, meaning group gatherings of wise counsel, in order to prevent these students from feeling inadequate in their education. Now, 
education into any subject might leave individuals feeling a little inadequate because they're surrounded by their superiors who are experts in their field and they can experience what this uh, essay says is, quote, imposter syndrome. Yeah, good. You're supposed to. That means you commit more to your education in order to alleviate this sense of of incapacity. Um, But the whole point of this essay, as I said, it gets around to it is to say that this, the whole industry, the medical education industry, needs to hire, hire and promote, quote, facilitators with a, quote, keen awareness of how racism operates at all levels, which is really thinly veiled code for make-work jobs for DEI professionals just so we, we take the gun off your back. That's it. That's what this industry has dedicated itself to. And it festoons itself with this incomprehensible jargon and racially uh, race, bigoted, assessments, racial generalizations of people and to ascribe them into categories. And then in order to alleviate the the vestiges of racism, we need to segregate people into racial groups. It's just incomprehensible and doesn't make any sense outside of an understanding that it is just special pleading for more money. So what what I have been making the argument about, Noah, talking to Noah Rothman of NationalReview.com, is that if one goes down this road, There is no possible way that medical care is better. Medical care has to suffer if this is the focus. If you are more concerned with the pronoun you use with the patient, if you are more concerned with how you're supposed to word something because this patient has this color skin or comes from this part of the world, the actual care, by definition, has to be lessened. Does anybody talk about what's happened to medicine on that regard while we still have a couple of minutes and and whether or not these kinds of moves these kinds of decisions these kinds of this kind of pseudo intellectual pursuit has brought down actual care in the united states i don't know if there's any evidence relating to outcomes as you would say um if there were it would be a scandal or at least it should be there are certainly voices within the medical establishment who are sounding the alarm over Um, the imposition on clinicians of ideological objectives, irrespective of their clinical practices and their medical education. Uh, And they're not alone. Every institution in America similarly has at least a a couple of dissenters against what has become this fashionable orthodoxy, a racialist orthodoxy. Um, But it has not risen to the level that I think you would like to see and what I would like to see is a wholesale rejection of an anti-intellectual philosophy. We haven't seen that yet. But it's bumbling, it's brewing, and this sort of thing, I think, uh, fosters and engenders more uh, resentment than it does a sense uh, that we're alleviating some sort of, or repairing some sort of real damage here, especially when it's paired with this uh, with this action with this clear uh, you know request for just public funds for sinecures for people who have the right ideology. So, so taking a different look at the same question. Are we seeing less kids going to med uh, school, less people wanting to be doctors, less graduation uh, rates when people are sounding the alarm? Um, are these some of the alarms that, that you're hearing about that are being sounded? What I'm hearing from doctors is we aren't graduating people who actually know how to save a life. I mean, that's exquisitely disturbing. Uh, again, sounds like talking to people in the medical establishment is where you'd want to be on that one, especially since it's such a leading indicator of, of, a, of a larger problem here. Um, but you can sense, and I, you experience, and I experience, quite a lot of resentment to this sort of thing. The problem is, is that there are real consequences for people in these industries who stick their neck out in defense 
of really basic classically liberal pedagogy. Uh, that, that is a fraught prospect for anybody who wants to lead a quiet life, uh, a quiet anonymous life, and do good work in their chosen right. field. That option is being denied you increasingly, which is probably much of the subject of my book, The Rise of the New Puritans Fighting Back Against Progressives' War on Fun, although in fields like uh, food preparation and entertainment and fashion and not necessarily saving lives, although it's much more serious. Noah Rothman, NationalReview.com. The Rise of the New Puritans, you can get that at Amazon.com. The Rise of the New Puritans, Fighting Back Against the Progressives' War on Fun. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. More is coming up. I'm Tony Katz. Yet another story of a San Francisco closing, this being Nordstrom. Closing its San Francisco locations due to, and get this, the dynamics of the area. Oh! You mean the crap on the streets. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. That's what you mean. You mean the theft. You mean the violence. You mean the fact that San Francisco is unsafe because the leadership doesn't actually believe in controlling the city. They let the vagrants control the city. They let the drug dealers control the city. Lord knows what level of the cartels are controlling the city. And they won't actually act because somehow acting is violence. We spent more than 35 years serving customers in downtown San Francisco, building relations with them and investing in the local community. But as many of you know, the dynamics of downtown San Francisco market have changed dramatically over the past several years, impacting customer foot traffic. That's one heck of a way to say this place ain't safe. We out because that's exactly what they're saying. This is Tony Katz today.